Amen. So Philippians chapter 2, and we wrapped up, you know, as we wrapped up chapter 1 last week, we ended there in verse 27 with just a really interesting exhortation by Paul saying, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 27 of chapter 1, right? And so you listen to that, you look at that, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You can hear that and go, oh my goodness, like, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big deal. Like, is that even attainable? Is that something that I can even reach? It seems very intimidating, but Paul begins to kind of lay out a little bit more and clarify for us what it looks like to live or conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says here in the middle or at the end of verse 27 that you stand fast in one spirit, that you have one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So stand fast in one spirit and have one mind, right? Have one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. See, it's not about feeding your own spirit or striving to live out your own mind and your own wishes and desires. It's about striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, I love how Paul says stand fast in one spirit. Because remember, if you're here with us as we went through Ephesians just very recently, Ephesians ends with this idea of standing your ground, putting on the armor of God. And, and Paul said repeatedly to stand fast, right? To stand your ground and, and, and take up the whole armor of God and having done all to stand, right? And now he's saying, and, and, he, and he said all that because talking about a very real enemy that's coming against you, that's looking to oppose you, looking to push you back, push you down. So Paul says, stand. And now he's saying in Philippians again, stand fast, hold your ground. Don't let anything push you away, move you back. And there's one thing also that's going to cause you to kind of give up ground and not stand fast in one spirit. And that is when you begin to live for self, when you become the focus of your existence, that's when there's gonna be problems. So he says, stand fast in one spirit and with one mind striving. This is how you're gonna be conducting yourself worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now the gospel is potent and powerful enough as it is. To hear that Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin, he died and he rose again, securing life and eternal life for you. That is amazing, that is wonderful, that is powerful right there, that's huge. But when the church preaches that, but then promotes an inconsistent message by how they live, people are left wondering, is there really any truth or power to this gospel and to this new life in Christ? And the church can very easily begin to give up ground or move away from this position that Paul is talking about here as we move into chapter two about having this one spirit and one mind and walking in unity. So Paul begins to encourage us to do that, to walk in unity. It's, it's what often comes out in his writings. It was such an important thing in Paul's day that the church not divide over non-essential things, that they don't begin to have different kind of factions and disputes. And Paul's gonna be sort of addressing this a little bit in Philippians there in chapter four with these two women in the church that were having a bit of a dissension. Paul wants to address that. But he's beginning to lay out the foundation for us to say, man, you need to walk with that one mind and, and one spirit. And in order to do that, you need to be a church that's loving, loving to one another. Because 
when you are walking in love, what is happening is that suddenly there's just that absence of self. If you have a bunch of people gathering together where it's all about them, you're going to be really lacking in the love department because love is about living selflessly. It's about thinking of others. Paul's going to be addressing all of that here in, in chapter 2. And again, for us to be able to see that and to, and to have that happen, we're going to walk in humility. Unity begins to come through humility. When we begin to have a proper view of ourself. Humility is not so much um, thinking the worst of yourself. It's just really not thinking of yourself at all. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Where you're just not even really part of the equation. Where the focus is not on you. Humility becomes so essential. Now, Leonard Bernstein, the late conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, was once asked to name the most difficult instrument to fill. Without hesitation, he replied, the second fiddle. I get plenty of people that want to play first violin, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And yet, if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony, he said. It was John Riskin who said, I believe the first test of a truly great man is his humility. I do not mean by humility doubt of his own power or hesitation speaking his opinion, but really great men have a feeling that the greatness is not in them but through them, that they could not do or be anything else than God made them. Andrew Murray said, the humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised while he is forgotten because he has received the spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself and who sought not his own honor. Therefore, in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, he has put on the heart of compassion, kindness, meekness, long-suffering, and humility. M.R. Dehan used to say, humility is something we should constantly pray for yet never thank God that we have. And that is so true, isn't it? You got some people that just are like, Lord, thank you for making me so humble. Lord, I wish more people could be like me. It's kind of like, man, you just ruined it right there. Like the humility just went out the window on that one. It's time to repent, right? So listen, Paul's going to be addressing this, this importance of humility. And our focus today is on this submissive, humble mind. Remember, this is in keeping with our outline that we're looking at going through the book of Philippians. Because the book of Philippians is all about joy, right? That's really the theme. And yet we see throughout Philippians that there's different robbers of joy. There's different things that want to come in and take away that joy from you. We saw in the first chapter that the secret of joy in spite of, remember, remember, circumstances is what kind of mind? Anybody? It's a test for you. I know, sorry, I shouldn't do that for you, but it's the single mind. The single mind. The secret of joy in spite of circumstances is the single mind. What does Paul say in verse 21 in chapter 1? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Everything was about Christ for Paul. Whether he lived, whether he died, it was all about Christ. That was the single mind that Paul showed. But now in chapter 2, we begin to see another potential robber of joy. <laughs> that is people. It's you. Yeah. It's you. We can all be those that can just suck the joy out of one another when we begin to live 
selfishly. So Paul says in chapter 2 now, the outline for us is that the secret of joy in spite of people is the submissive mind. The humble mind, the submissive mind. And we're going to look at, in these first four verses that we're going to look at today, we're going to see the exhortation to humility. Next week in verse 5 and on, we'll look at the example of humility. Uh, <laughs> it's been a long day. Kind of set that. Okay, the example of humility. Then we're going to see the exercise of humility and the expression of humility. So in, in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul begins the chapter in a bit of an interesting, maybe even confusing way. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore... If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Therefore, you always ask, what is that therefore? Paul is tying this in to what he's just been talking about, living your life in a manner that's this conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And so Paul's going to build on that now. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ. Now when we read that, we look at that and we go, it's kind of a, a weird way. If there's, it's almost as though you're reading this thinking, Paul, are you kind of asking the question, like, do these people that you're writing to, have they experienced a consolation in Christ? Has there been any comfort? Are they experiencing this? Are you writing this as though you're kind of doubting and wondering? That's not what Paul is doing. What he's saying by saying, if there, it's, it's actually, he's saying, since there is, these are obvious, assured things that the people have experienced who are in Christ. And so he's writing these things to kind of give that incentive and motivation to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying, listen, because you have, or since you have received this consolation in Christ, since you have received this comfort of love and fellowship of the Spirit and affection and mercy, since you have already received these things, let these things be the motivation for you to live out these things. He's going to build on these four things in verse 1. Consolation, encouragement, comfort of love, fellowship in the Spirit, and affection and mercy. Now that word for consolation in the Greek is an interesting word. We think of that word consolation as though like, hey, you've won the consolation prize, which means like you didn't win the big one that you were really hoping to get, but we got a consolation prize, a nice box of chocolates or something. You're like, what? Box of chocolates, I was going for the big ticket item there. So the consolation prize is that thing that kind of comes alongside. It's sort of like, you know, the, the runner up in a sense. But we think of it sometimes, we go, that doesn't seem to make sense, consolation. But the way that that word is is translated in other translations is the word encouragement. Some of you might have a Bible that says, since there is or if there's any encouragement in Christ. And the Greek word that's used there is the Greek word parakletus, or paraklesis, I should say. Paraklesis, which is interesting because there's another form of that Greek word used elsewhere in Scripture. It's found in John chapter 14, verse 16 and verse 26, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit that is going to be sent into the world. And what does he refer to the Holy Spirit as? The helper or in the greek parakletos the helper is one jesus said who's going to come alongside you who's going to minister to you who's going to be of help to you one that's going to come alongside so paul is writing here saying since there is the consolation in christ or the encouragement the one that comes alongside and it's not that jesus just comes alongside to encourage you kind of like a cheerleader like hey you're doing great just keep going 
It's going to be fine. You're going to do all right. He's not just in there cheering. It's like the idea is that he comes alongside to kind of give that instruction and help here. It's as though it's speaking of how Jesus kind of models it for us and instructs us in these things or, or convicts us even to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. He's not just cheering us on, but he's instructing and, and setting that example for us. It's like right now I'm teaching one of my kids how to drive a, a stick shift, drive a standard, right? I'm not going to say which one it is because they'd be very embarrassed if I did. But she's um, learning this. Uh, <laughs> she's, uh, yeah, she's learning this stick shift. And, and she's doing really good. I, I guess she's doing good. But, you know, when I come alongside, I'm sitting in the passenger seat. I'm coming alongside her to, to help her, right? But I'm not just sitting there in the passenger seat just as that kind of encouragement. I'm sitting there as that instructor. So that when she's you know, ready to make a left-hand turn, which for when you're learning to drive stick, making a left-hand turn, that can be a fearful thing, right? Your heart is racing. You're thinking, there's oncoming cars coming, and i got to make sure I get out in time, and I don't stall. And if I stall in the middle of the intersection, cars are going to come. And right now, she's freaking out, going, hey, that's why I don't want to drive a stick. But anyways, she's going to do fine. But I'm sitting there, and so she drives out, let's say, and suddenly she stalls the car, and cars are coming, and they're hogging. I'm not just sitting here saying, it's okay, honey. You'll do fine. Everything's going to work out. No, I'm sitting there saying, listen, here's what you got to do. Get that clutch in. Get that car started up again. Let that clutch up part way. Get that gas going in there. You got to make that turn. You got to make sure you do it quickly. I'm giving the instructions so she knows what to do. Periclesis. Encouragement right? Coming alongside. That's what Jesus does. And he modeled all this for us. And you think about what he did in John 13, right? When he, he comes after the, the supper he has with his disciples and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And what does he say? Just as I've done to you, you do one to another. He modeled this. He, he, he instructs. He comes alongside and he does these things, but he encourages us to do the same. And he says, Secondly, if there's any comfort of love. The second factor that's to be challenging us and moving us on in unity, he says, you've been comforted, not if, but since, because you have been comforted by that love of Christ. Now, this word for comfort is a bit of a unique one. We all know what the word comfort means, but this is the only time this word in the Greek is used in the New Testament. In other words, it's not really the, the typical word that's used for comfort as we think of it as this word is, is kind of a word that speaks of persuasiveness or incentive. Again, it's like Paul saying, since you have this kind of, this incentive of the love of Christ. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 where he says, for the love of Christ compels us. It's like Paul saying, man, I do all these things because I am so moved and motivated and and." persuaded by the love of Christ. It's that which is moving me to continue on to live this life for Christ in a manner worthy of the gospel, but also to seek to be a blessing to one another. It's the love of Christ that's moving Paul, compelling him. That's what he's speaking of. Since you have this comfort of love, this comfort of love is not just to make you feel good and be like, oh, I'm so happy with myself because of love. No, it's to compel you to continue on in that love and to show and reveal that love to others. And the third factor is what? That fellowship of the Spirit. Having that fellowship of the Spirit. As believers in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. 
The moment you give your life to Christ, put your faith in him, the Bible says that he, he seals you with his Holy Spirit. So the same spirit that is in me is the same spirit that's to work in you as believers in Christ. And this spirit now brings us into fellowship with God, but it's also to keep us in unity and fellowship with one another. See, we've got the vertical that we're looking at, our relationship to God, that we now have because we've been reconciled through the Spirit dwelling in us, by which we call out Abba Father, right? The Spirit working in us, being in relationship with the Lord. But it's that same Spirit that's to be working on the horizontal plane now, where we're to be having these, this fellowship with one another. Now, here's the thing. We cannot enjoy this fellowship on the vertical plane with God if our fellowship on the horizontal plane is off, if it's not right. If there are things that are going on in our relationships with one another, then it's going to affect our vertical with God. And in the same way, if our relationship with God is not right, it's going to affect our relationships with one another. We're not going to be walking in the Spirit. We're going to be driven more by selfishness than we are of the Spirit. And so both of these is so important. We need both the vertical and the horizontal all connected through the Spirit to be at work and in place. And that's what John in his epistle talked about in 1 John 1, verse 3 to 4, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So as Paul deals with that subject of unity and ongoing joy, we see here that we need to have this unity and fellowship in and through the Spirit. If not, we're going to quickly come apart. And how important it is that we don't allow our fellowship and relationships to be hindered by, you know, hurts and difficulties or offenses. So the Bible says, man, if somebody's offended you, go to the brother. Go to that person. You know, so often I, 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 can, I, I can see where somebody might get hurt or offended and they just walk and they, they leave. And they think, that person, it's up to them. They offended me. They've got to come to me and make it right. And sometimes that person doesn't even know they've done anything wrong until you go and talk to them. Suddenly they can see, oh, and I didn't realize I, I said what I said or I said it in that way. I, I, I'm sorry. And you see, you get to make amends. How important it is that we do that with one another and not wait and not allow bitterness to grow. But because of the Spirit working in us, say, man, I want to make sure my relationships with one another are intact and, and, and sitting right. And there's something I have against another. I got I to gotta make that right. I got to be the one that take, takes action to do that. Don't trust somebody else. Don't wait for somebody else. You take that first step. I love what James Boyce said. He said, do you have a Christian brother or sister with whom you're not speaking or a Christian member of your household with whom you are not on very bad terms or with whom you are on very bad terms? Are there Christians of other denominations with whom you will not have fellowship? If that is so, then I tell you on the authority of these verses that there is something lacking in your own relationship with God. Your lack of fellowship with another Christian is not of God's doing. It's your doing. And it indicates a lack of fellowship with him. His spirit seeks to draw you together. Participation in the Spirit is one of the strongest incentives for true harmony. Participation in the Spirit 
is one of the strongest incentives for true harmony. Oh, I pray that we might see the Spirit at work moving in our lives and binding us together, standing firm in one spirit, binding us together in unity, having that Spirit leading us in relationship with God, but more so, also, not more so, but also in relationship with one another. Fourth factor he brings up there in verse one is if any affection and mercy, and again, it's not if, but since you have received this affection and mercy from God, then have that same affection or compassion and mercy towards one another. We certainly didn't deserve to receive any kind of mercy from God, to have any kind of compassion from the Lord upon us. None of us deserve that, did we? And yet so often we can find ourselves in a position going, that person doesn't deserve mercy. That person has just been mean. They don't deserve my compassion. Neither did you, and yet that's what we have freely received from God. And so may we continue on with that encouragement in Christ, with that same love in the fellowship of the Spirit. May we continue on to show affection and mercy to others, even when they least deserved it, knowing that we never deserve it either, and yet that's what we receive freely by God's grace. So Paul looks at these wonderful qualities that we now have in Christ since you have these things. These are the realities for those that are, have put their faith in Jesus. Since you now have these things in Christ, he says, now we must, we must put them on and live them out now towards others. We need to have that same thinking and that same attitude toward others that Christ has shown us. Now, through this book so far, we've seen Paul just really exuding joy. His whole attitude, everything he's talking about, is just rejoicing in this, joyful over that. And he's writing from prison, and yet joy is the dominant theme in his, in his life here. And yet, what does he say now in verse 2? He says, fulfill my joy. It's like, Paul, is there any more room for joy? He's just like kind of saying, man, just let that joy overflow me. Let that joy meter just sort of explode now. And here's how that's going to happen, he says, by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. That's what Paul's desires, that they would come together, they would be one. And to see a church operating in this unity through humility, walking in love towards one another, Paul says, man, that's what's going to make my joy, which is already capped out, just kind of erupt and explode and overflow, man. Let my joy be made even more full by seeing the church function in this way this is the very thing that jesus prayed for in john chapter 17 oh father they might be one as you and i are one. Oh, that the world might see and know that's what jesus prayed is for that unity and togetherness within the church no that's what's going to be a strong witness in the world that's what's going to bring a blessing to the church and cause the church to be a blessing in the world so he talks about these incentives now. And then in, in verse 2, we kind of look at now how verse 2 matches up kind of with verse 1. In verse 1, we saw those four incentives. But now in verse 2, these four directives are given. They kind of match up. Basically saying, since there's consolation in Christ in verse 1, but now in verse 2, be like-minded. Since there's comfort of love, have the same love now in verse 2. Since there's fellowship of the Spirit, be of one accord. And since there's affection and mercy, be of one mind. 
This is what Paul is, is saying. He's comparing these two now. And what we have to understand is that being called to a greater bond of unity, this unity does, does not mean or speak of uniformity or conformity. We do not all have to look the same, do the same things for there to be unity in the church. That's the beauty of the blessed unity and diversity. I'm not saying that we all have to do everything or look the same way. What's to be unifying us and trumping all of the things is our desire to magnify Jesus. When we're living in a way where we're saying, I want to see Jesus be high and lifted up, be exalted in my life and in our gatherings together, and us serving together for that common purpose, that's what's going to unify us. When we're collectively seeking to do that, then we're going to be experiencing a like-mindedness we're going to see that same love. We're going to be of one accord and have one mind. Listen, having the same love is not just, you know, hanging out with people that love the same things you do, right? Sometimes you can look at it, oh, that's, a, that's the way I'm going to interpret it. That means I'm just going to be with people that want to. So when I say, hey, let's go get some ice cream, they're going to be like, yeah, I love ice cream. Let's go get some ice cream. They're going to do everything I want to do. You're thinking like, that's going to be awesome, man. Just have somebody to hang out with and everything that I want to do, they're going to want to do. This isn't what Paul's talking about, having the same love. He's talking about making sure that that unifying love in Christ just dominates and trumps everything else. That it makes everything else of less importance. That every other kind of disagreement you might have or, or, or things that you see things differently on just kind of fades away when you see that our same love for Christ is going to win out here and trump all other things. Have one mind. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, where he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you. See, Paul's had to address this over and over again in his writings. That there be no divisions among you, but, he says, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. To be perfectly joined together in the same mind. Do you see that? Now, that's interesting, because that word there in the Greek for joined is katartizo. And it means to mend or to restore. It's the same word used to speak of the disciples who were mending their nets there in Matthew 4. In other words, we can have some holes and areas of brokenness, but by having the same mind, we begin to mend and restore these areas that need repair. We all know that, man. We're, we come together, we're, we're broken people. We're not perfectly joined but when we begin to have the same mind we begin to operate in this unity of christ through the fellowship of the spirit having the same love suddenly we begin to see and how that gets us perfectly joined together where it begins to mend or restore any bit of brokenness or or holes that are there that need filling that needs restoration it begins to bring that kind of healing to the body of christ as we begin to have that one mind together he says in verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Listen, I don't have any problem with ambition. I think ambition can be good. I like hanging out with ambitious people. Why? Because they're, they're like adventurers. They, they want to get things done. They want to they be active. And I like that. Things, things happen when you're around ambitious people. That's not a bad thing. 
Paul's not addressing ambition. He's addressing selfish ambition. And selfish ambition can be so damaging and crippling to a church. Why? Because the focus, again, becomes on the individual. Ambition is doing that which is for the greater good, but selfish ambition is doing for the good of the individual. Self, again. Remember when James and John, they, they came to Jesus as he's talking about the kingdom there in Mark chapter 10. And they come to Jesus and like, Jesus, hey, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. It's kind of like, you know, Lord, will you, will you agree to do this before we tell you? Because if we tell you first, we kind of think that you're not going to do it for us. So would you just do it for us before we ask you? And so they're like, here's what we want. When you enter in your glory, when you enter in your kingdom, we want to be at your left hand and at your right hand. We want to sit at your right hand and at your left hand. Why? Because these were the positions of prominence. This was so that John and James could say, we're kind of like over everybody else. We've got the positions of priority and prominence in your kingdom. Listen, you want to talk about selfish ambition? That was it right there. I don't think they're going, Lord, we just really want to help serve one another. We want to be left so then we can really give to her. I don't think that's the case. They're like, we want to be at the top spot, man. Selfish ambition right there. And so what does Jesus say? He answers them back in Mark 10, verse 43 to 45. He says, whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was revealing to his disciples a very new concept others. This was something that very revolutionary in this time because people did not have this kind of thinking that humility was a virtue. It's like, humble yourself? Are you kidding me? No, we've got to promote ourselves. We've got to show everybody that we're the kingpin, we're the boss here. And so humility was kind of a, a not a, a popular view. So when Jesus comes in and says, listen, I want you to serve others, not seek to be served. See, in God's economy, the way up is down, but the way down is up. Jesus says, man, if, if you'll submit yourself, I, I will lift you up. Humble yourself and I will lift you up. Jesus was promoting something that was very revolutionary, but it was something, too, that he was modeling for them, as we've already seen. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Paul says, be clear, there's, there's, there's no room for that. There's, not, there's never a time when you're going to be able to look at something and say, you know what, I think this is a cause for a little bit of selfish ambition. <laughs> Maybe this is something that's going to serve. Them. No, Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition, but here's how, you're to, here's how you're to operate. Here's how you're to function. In lowliness of mind. In lowliness of mind. What does that mean? Again, that humility. Walking in Humility. Not, not just thinking of yourself less, but thinking less of yourself. I, I may not be that funny or good looking or smart or talented or mechanically inclined or I kind of forgot where I was going with that and I'm kind of depressed now all of a sudden. Um, See, we can sometimes confuse humility with false humility where we think all we got to do is put ourselves down. 
if we just put ourselves down, that's going to really show humility. And yet what sometimes people get chopped in is confusing humility with false humility where they think, if I just put myself down, that's going to really show. But what oftentimes happens is when people put themselves down, they're saying, I need somebody to build me up. I need somebody to, to you know, correct me and make me feel good. And it becomes about self. False humility can be a very selfish thing where you're looking at yourself. But again, humility is not just thinking of yourself in a worse way. It's just not thinking of yourself. It's saying, I just don't even need to be a part of the equation here because I've died to myself as Jesus has instructed me and I want to serve others. It's not about me. It's about glorifying Christ and blessing one another. That's what Paul is getting at here. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition but, or conceit, you know, in, in pride. I, I mean, pride is such a dangerous thing, my friends. You know, pride is what caused sin to come into the world. It's what knocked Satan out of heaven. Was he wanted to be worshipped and exalted like God. He wanted to make himself like God. And it's what he comes and he tempts Eve with. Oh, did he really say you can't eat of that? No, 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 no. You just meant like you've eaten that, then you're going to become like a god. So have at it. Feeding the pride. And pride becomes such a dangerous thing because it's our pride that causes us to not see the pride in our lives. We all go, I'm not prideful. What are you talking about? I'm the most humblest person here. <laughs> it's your pride that says that. And pride can be so blinding. And I've seen that happen so often. Pride can be so blinding. And it really becomes the, the root of so much sin. Pride and self. And they go hand in hand. Pride and self become the root of pretty much every sin. And that's why Paul says, oh man, we need to die to ourselves. We need to, with lowliness of mind, esteem others better than ourselves. Stop thinking of yourself and start building up other people. Start encouraging, coming alongside others to lift them up rather than see yourself lifted up or promoted. Build up others. He says in verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interest but also for the interests of others. What a blessing it is when an individual is not just interested in what they can get out of something or what they can gain in a situation, but when they, when they look at how they can bless others, a church looking out for one another is going to be a very healthy church. Because it's showing a church that's filled with the Spirit and now bearing the fruits of the Spirit. And listen, there's going to be times where you may not feel like doing that. Serve that person, come along them, die to self to bless others, and think more highly of them. There's going to be times where you don't feel like doing that. But our Christian life has never been based on feeling, has it? it I mean, love. The very love that God has shown us is, is not about feeling. It's based on a decision and a commitment. It's about yielding to self. It's about sacrifice. It's unconditionally loving somebody selflessly. That's what it's about. It's, it's not about a feeling. And our Christian life is not about feeling. These aren't things that we do because we feel like doing it or because we feel that somebody is deserving of that as we've already seen today. We do this because this is the model that Jesus set for us. This is the example we have 
of him. And, and we're going to see this example of humility next week when we pick it up in verse 5, when we begin to see the incredible humility that Jesus came to this world with and what he exemplified, what he did for each and every one of us. So I encourage you, I, I implore you today, begin, like Paul says, to esteem others better than yourself. Don't be just concerned about self, but look out for the interest of others. See what's going to be blessing to others. And here's the great thing, my friends, is that when you seek to live in a way where it's not about you, but it's about glorifying Jesus and serving one another, that's the way that you're going to be most blessed. That's the way that you're going to see that joy meter increase in your life. Get your eyes off of self. Stop living for self. And say, Lord, I want to be that disciple. I want to be that follower of you that has died to self, taking up my cross daily, following you in a way that looks at others. Says, how can I bless them? How can I serve them? How can I esteem them more than myself? That's the way that you're going to be blessed and encouraged, where joy will increase in your life. All right, let's pray. Worship team, you guys can come up, and we'll close with a song, but let me pray here. Let's all stand together. Lord, we come before you, and we're grateful for our time today to, to worship you and to look into your word and what important instruction we have before us. But I love how Paul sets out for us the foundation that we, these are all things that we've received in you already. Since we have that consolation in Christ, since we have that comfort of love and fellowship in the Spirit, that affection and mercy, help us, Lord, because we have those things, to display that now to others, to live in a way where we're not focused on self, we're not making it about us, but we're making it about others. And as we do that, as we serve one another, we know that we're glorifying you, we're honoring you, and that's the chief goal that we live for. So may you help us in this. Lord, I pray for the ongoing health of this church. I pray for the ongoing health of churches just globally, that, Lord, we'd be one as you are one, that you would unite us, Lord, and unite us because of you and in you. May we just simply keep you the main thing and find that unity and, and oneness of mind and spirit in that. And if you're here listening and maybe you're watching online and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to invite him in and to know the salvation and the forgiveness of sin that he has given you. You see, the bad news first is that we're all born in sin. Sin has separated us from God. And because of that sin, we're without hope, the Bible says. But God changed all that by sending his son Jesus into the world. He sent his son into the world as one of us to go and do for us what we can do for ourselves. Jesus went to the cross, and by going to the cross, he took the penalty for your sin and my sin upon himself. He took the judgment of God so that you could be forgiven. He died and he rose again, securing life for all those that put their trust in Jesus for that forgiveness of sin. And all that you're called to do is simply confess your sin, repent of it, turn away from it, and now put your faith and trust in Jesus as the one who brings you into a right relationship and a right standing with God. 
If you've never prayed that, if you've never accepted that, if you've never called out to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, would you do that today? Don't wait. Don't put it off. You never know when you'll have another chance. And when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you become a new creation. You know that when you die, you're the assurance of life eternal, that you'll be with the Savior. You'll be with Jesus forever and ever. What a blessing that is. That's the hope that we have now today. There's no fear when you are in Christ. So would you receive him as your Lord and Savior today? Pray a simple prayer. Lord, I confess my sin. I confess I'm in need of your salvation and forgiveness. Forgive me of my sin and come into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. I accept you now. Give me life in you. Amen. A simple prayer like that means you've become a child of God. So I encourage you to do that. Let us know if you have. Email us. Come and talk to me after. I'd love to share more with you. All right. Well, Lord bless all of you. Let's sing and worship the Lord here.